You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. It's an honor for me tonight to introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Jürgen Saleh. Jürgen has been engaged for more than two decades as a climate policy researcher and official, first with the government of his home country, Sweden, and now for many years with the European Commission. At one stage, Jürgen led the EU team in uh, policy talks with Russia and other Eastern European states, which made him an excellent resource for my current task force on the Baltic Sea region and the new Cold War here at the Jackson School. Dr. Saleh is currently the EU fellow, fellow with the West European Studies Program and the EU Center of the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. In addition to sharing his knowledge and insights with students, as he will be doing with us tonight, Jürgen is also taking the opportunity of a year in Seattle to study how the Pacific Coast states, California and especially Oregon and Washington, are developing and implementing environmental policy at the state and local levels in the absence, let's say, of national leadership on this issue. So keeping with the theme of my remarks, what am I hoping Dr. Saleh concludes from this research? Naturally, they persisted. Please join me in welcoming Jürgen Saleh. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much, John, for the kind words. Um, and for a very, I think, important historic perspective. I'm myself, as you heard, working with the European Commission, and I suppose you all know what the European Commission is. I won't lecture you on that, uh, but I would perhaps describe myself as a kind of technocrat, if you like. So I'm one of these guys who work in, on implementing policies and legislation, monitoring legislation in the European Union, and drafting new proposals as the executive branch of the European Union, the Commission, uh, can and has to do. And my field of specialization is actually climate policy. So that's the reason why I'm here, to look what's happening on local and state level in this corner in the United States in climate policy. And I've been working on this for a long time. Um, but before I start uh, with a, a real speech that I prepared, because I'm very honored to have been invited to give the keynote speech here, it's important for me personally, and I'm very happy to see so many students coming here to act and negotiate as Europeans. That's a very nice feeling. Um, myself, I started out as a student in the 80s during the Cold War, and I think not many people can imagine how the Cold War was. There was a kind of weird stability in Europe, at least. And I specialized in international studies, too. So I actually started with Central and East European studies, or Soviet and East European studies, as it was called in those days. So that was my first starting point. And through a lot of, of circumstances and by chance, and I will spare you the whole history, I ended up uh, doing environmental energy policy and then climate policy. But I started out studying other countries, other languages that were very different from where I lived and grew up. So I appreciate very much what you are doing as students this generation. So let me now turn to what I'm here for. Um, and um, 
I'm very happy again to be here to uh, attend this year's Model EU event. Um, and as I already indicated, for me, um, who has negotiated climate policy on European and international level for about 20 years, uh, this has been a very important part of my professional life. Um, so I'm very happy to have this opportunity to speak to would-be uh, negotiators as yourself. So I live and work in Brussels. You heard a bit about Brussels from John already. And as you know, many of the EU institutions are located in Brussels. And it's, I think, rightly so, often called the capital of Europe. But it's also the capital of Belgium, which is a small country, about a sixth of the size of the state, can you imagine, right? So we have countries that are even smaller, in both in terms of population and size in individual states in the United States. Uh, so it's a pretty crowded place. Um, now, Belgium is an interesting country. Despite its small size, uh, it has three official languages. So about 60% of the population in Belgium, they speak Dutch. And most of the rest, they speak French. But Belgium also has a tiny German-speaking population near its border to Germany. And this is the remainder of the First World War peace agreement, where Germany had to cede territory to Belgium, and it's still there, and they still speak German. Um, and to help introducing you tonight to European Union, uh, I would like to tell you a bit about a bike trip that I did with my family two years ago in this part of Europe, because I think it's a good example of what Europe is today. Um, and I already, oh, 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 I didn't see that. Okay, so I'm going back. Um, now, let's start with this bike trip. So one day in August, we took our bikes, me and my family, uh, from Brussels. We took the train uh, to the German-speaking part in the east of Belgium. And from the trains and the road signs, I could tell I was still in Belgium. That was clear. But otherwise, I had the impression that I was in Germany. The small town where we stayed the first night, everyone was speaking German. Adults, children alike, German. The next day, we biked in three different countries. We managed to do that in half a day. In the morning, we rode our bikes in Belgium. One and a half hour later, we crossed the invisible border to Germany. And by noon, our bike wheels rolled over the border to Luxembourg. The fact that we could cross two borders without needing any passports and without any customs control is an important result of the European Union. Among its fundamental principles are the four freedoms of movement. The free movement of people, of goods, of services, and of capital. These freedoms have helped to create an integrated and comprehensive single market which benefits 500 million people in 28 countries and beyond in Europe. These freedoms have also contributed to the European Union becoming the biggest trading bloc in the world and a global economic player. Now, the bike trip I did with my family two years ago does not only illustrate the economic purpose of the European Union, and the freedoms its citizens can enjoy. It also provides a very good example of how and why the Euro European Union came about. 
One evening, after a long day on the bike in the Ardennes, we arrived in a small village in northern Luxembourg. Uh, I made a mistake of going down a steep hill in search of our hotel. And once down in the valley, the receptionist at the hotel kindly informed me that I was in the wrong place. Our hotel was up on the ridge where we came from. Uh, tired and irritated at the thought of biking up that steep hill, I sat down to rest a bit before the ardors uphill bike ride. By chance, I had sat down at a historic monument commemorating the Allies' fight in the Ardennes against Nazi Germany at the end of the Second World War. The monument honored the American soldiers who came to Europe in 1944 to fight against Hitler, to defend liberty and democracy, and who died on the battlefield during the bitterly cold and snowy winter of 1944. Some of you who are sitting here today may have great-grandparents who fought in Europe during the war. Three generations later, it's a very good feeling to be here in this room today and note that North, Amer North Americans still are engaged in European affairs. But instead of going to Europe to fight a war, they can now come to study and travel in peace. The importance of the European Union in maintaining peace in Europe for more than 70 years cannot be underestimated. And the long period of stability is the best proof of its success. For my younger colleagues in the European Commission, who I work with on a daily basis, who all come from different European countries and speak different European languages, the freedom of movement and the common market are natural and given. For me, they are remarkable achievements considering Europe's long history of conflicts and wars. Today, when we talk about the European Union, we mostly focus on the single market and its economic achievements. But we should never forget the reason why it was created. The European Union is a peace project. After two disastrous wars on the European continent in the 20th century, the founding fathers of the European Union said enough is enough and created a community with the aim to prevent further wars. And I thought John, the, the description you gave about John Monet, and I actually didn't know about this history. I should, uh, what he tried to set up in 1940, I think this links very nicely to what I said now. So thanks for reminding me and us about that event in European history. Now, remember, as John said, that the European Union started with a European coal and steel community. It was not created primarily to promote free movement of these two commodities. The European community was created to control and coordinate the production of coal and steel which were needed to rebuild Europe. But coal and steel were also two important raw materials in the production of arms and weapons. The increasing integration of European markets for production and consumption was a conscious choice to support peaceful cooperation. Now, this brings me back to the bike trip in the border region of the Ardennes. Uh, most of the time, we traveled on an abandoned railroad that had been converted into a recreational bike road. The road goes all the way from Aachen, the city of Aachen in western Germany, south to a small town in northern Luxembourg. The railroad was originally built during the First World War by the Germans to transport coal 
from today's northeastern France to the steelworks in the rural area, the rural Gebiet, in western Germany. The rural, the rural Gebiet, was the industrial powerhouse that supplied the German military machine in both world wars. So the bicycle trip that I did with my family, in fact, provides a nice example of the climate-friendly conversion of a railroad that was used to transport coal. But I think even more importantly, it also is a very concrete proof of the peaceful transformation of a whole European region that suffered heavily from two long wars in the past century. Now, let us leave my bike holiday and get back to you, get back with you to the negotiation table of the European Council and the Council of Ministers. The European Union's institutions are situated in Brussels, Luxembourg and Strasbourg. And the question is, of course, where will you be negotiating today? So, will you be in Brussels, in Luxembourg or Strasbourg? Any offers where you will be? Any guesses? The floor is yours. You have three cities to choose from. Where would you think we were, you're going to work tonight and tomorrow? Brussels? Yes. Any other ideas? Well, Brussels is certainly a possibility, and Luxembourg is the other one, when, because when the heads of state and or uh, government meet or ministers meet, they usually meet in Brussels or in Luxembourg. It depends a bit on the event and the time of the year. So those are the typical meeting venues. Um, now, when you start negotiating today, you are, as you probably well know, at the end of very long preparations. You are the heads of government or ministers of agriculture from 28 member states. Your task is to give political answer or political direction to questions that your officials and experts have not been able or not allowed to conclude in the council working groups. The discussion about Turkey is a typical example of a high-level political question that could be a matter for heads of government to decide. The reform of the Common Agriculture Policy, CAP, is a good case of a normal EU procedure. Before the meeting starting today on the question on the reform of the common agriculture policy, the agenda point and the framework for the minister's discussion have probably been prepared in various council groups, so-called working parties, under the chairmanship of the presidents. The European Commission also participates in these meetings. Now, if the topic would have been an actual legislative proposal from the European Commission to reform or change the CAP, officials representing their country and acting solely on instructions from the national governments would have been negotiating every week for months trying to agree on the common position of the Council. A common Council position on the CAP would have been needed before any negotiation could start with the other co-legislated, the European Parliament. Now, once the responsible Council Working Party has finished its discussion, the Presidency refers to resolved and unresolved issues to the next level. Now it is the 28 EU ambassadors' turn to discuss the proposal, and when they have finished the discussion, they will hand the matter over to you, the ministers or the heads of government. So, as you can tell from what I'm telling you, 
In the European Union, we discuss and negotiate a lot. We talk and talk and talk. <laughs> That's how we eventually learned, after perhaps 1,500 years of wars and errors, to overcome differences in the 20th century. And remember very well that the European Union consists of 28 countries, and they are very different in terms of population size, economic strength, political history, or geographical conditions. Because of these differences, the members of the European Union understand that compromises and flexible solutions are needed to reach agreement. We also spend much time listening to each other in the European Union. We not only talk. Notwithstanding their different views and priorities, EU leaders appreciate the needs and interests of others. For all these reasons, it is perhaps fair to say that the European Union is a continuous negotiation, a continuous state of negotiations. That's one way of describing the EU model, the European model. If you ever saw the real ministers at the negotiation table, you would probably see them touching their ears now and then. This does not mean that they have an earache. It probably only means that they're both listening to the original language of the speaker and the, to the interpretation into their own language in their headphone. Today and tomorrow you will be speaking English, I presume. <laughs> Uh, the ministers, however, they're entitled to speak English or any of the other 24 official languages of the European Union. By the way, when the EU started for some 60 years ago, there were only six member states and four official languages. So now it's my next question to you. Anyone who knows what these four languages were, it shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah? No guesses? Yes, in the back? Uh, Italian, French, German, and Dutch. Very well. You get brownie points for that. You get an additional baklava. <laughs> exactly. Those four languages. Now we have 24. So um, that is not so strange as it may sound. Uh, you have professional interpreters. It's always better to express yourself in your own language. And you can do all the kind of small talk and get additional diplomatic brownie points if you speak your counterparts' languages uh, during the lunches or breaks and so on. Anyway, uh, I found a quite uh, good way to illustrate the expansion of the European Union and the increasing complexity of its members in the cartoon that you already had a sneak preview of. Um, and let me see if I manage this. So, this is how it looked in 1957. Probably only men, six countries, probably all knew French. So even if they could speak their own language, they could at least order coffee in unison, more or less. And there were not too many coffees to choose from. This, again, this was 10 years or a bit after the war. So this is 57. By the way, this is one of my favorite cartoonists. It's Pierre Kroll from the Belgian Daily uh, Les Soirs. Uh, so, now we fast forward 50 years, and we arrive 2007. Now we have 27 member states. Croatia only became member state 2013. And you can see here uh, that it has changed quite a lot. Not only men, there are many 
more member states represented. And as you can see, uh, it's a lot of different ways of ordering hot drinks. And I will give a second brownie point to the one of you who can spot the odd man out here around the table. Especially these days, I think uh, uh, it's very timely, this observation, even if it was originally 2007. So, can you spot the odd man out here who is not ordering a hot drink? Yes? Yes. And I, of course, represent the European Commission. I will not speculate who that might be. <laughs> but despite the, and I've been in these meetings myself, and it works, you know? And, and I think on a personal, perhaps, reflection, having learned languages myself, and even if you're good at many languages, it's very different from having the opportunity to speak your own language. I've seen that both in UN negotiations and in European negotiations. So I think personally, the fact that we have these 24 official languages, that they have official status, is a very important fact. Then you can, of course, do a lot of work and groundwork in fewer languages. But this is how we work. And I think it's a fair observation, and it's a quite funny one, so I like to show this. And uh, it works. Believe me or not. So, let me now round off my speech to you by saying that, yes, in the European Union we do talk. We talk and talk in different languages and at different levels. But we usually find a solution. When going into the nitty-gritty of discussing technical aspects of EU legislation and negotiating new policies, it is easy to forget about the original purpose of the European Union. However, the work of negotiations and technical discussions is an essential part of how the European Union functions, and it is necessary for maintaining the integrity and credibility of the European Union and what it stands for. So in your efforts as negotiators to secure the best possible deal for your country that you are representing these two days, you should not forget that in the end, it is the agreement on EU level that counts. You need to negotiate, and negotiate well, and defend your interests well. But in the end, you need to find a compromise that all member states can live with. This is the European way. Continuous negotiations. You have to say it has worked surprisingly well in the past 70 years. I wish you success in your work ahead, and lots of good fun. Thank you very much.